Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a model of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 17 in our series of 2022, and today's date is Friday, May the 27th. First, I'll be talking to ThoughtWorks Director of Data and AI Practice, David Coles, on why businesses should adopt the creative use of artificial intelligence. And I'll be talking to economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and unemployment figures. But now let's talk to David Coles. Okay, well, David, tell us what is the potential for AI to identify unexpected innovations for Australian business? And why do organisations have to lead into creative AI? Yeah, great, great question. I think that uh, like AI is often perceived as a tool for improving operations or customer experience, areas where there's a lot of historical data uh, that can be used to inform predictive models. But uh, th- there's another area which, you know, which we describe as creative AI, which is more focused on generating content, generating product ideas and generating strategic ideas. And I think that that's, that, that area has, has a lot of opportunity uh, and there might not be a lot of ex- existing data, unlike the operational applications for AI. And this is, where the, yeah, this is where there's a lot of potential for Australian businesses. The design and innovation space can be a numbers game in some respects. Uh, there's, the, more, the more experiments you can run, the more ideas you can test cheaply and with low risk the more likely you are to find innovative opportunities in the product space and in business models and, and, and strategy. And uh, yeah, if there's one thing that AI is good at, then it's scaling to big numbers. And I think that uh, there's, a, there's an opportunity to uh, use the best of people's creative insight and talent and AI's ability to search through big spaces and generate, uh, generate novel concepts uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in this space. And there are a lot of drivers for innovation at the moment, uh, you know, ongoing adoption of new digital technologies, uh, responding to climate change, responding to public health, and then and the COVID pandemic and other uh, economic factors. So the more that you can explore in these areas of uncertainty, uh, the more opportunity you might unlock. What particular sectors would be particularly good for AI? Uh, so I think obviously in the in the digital space, the, the AI's ability to create content and and is is a place to look. Also, you know, with, with the response to these uh, these emerging challenges, 
supply chain operations and customer service, looking at looking at new models and, and, and using AI to assess their ability uh, to serve customer needs. So it would be particularly good, I would imagine, in the FMCG space. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, yeah, th- th- this is an area where, uh, especially if you look at, say, electrification of, of fleets, uh, then uh, there's an opportunity to explore uh, different distribution models and how that might impact uh, emissions and, and your response to uh, uh, and, and your, your climate change strategy and, and sustainability response. You've, you've worked with MacMyra, which is a, sp- a Swedish distillery of all places. And yes. uh, they used AI. Uh, tell me, what did it do for them? Yeah, great. Uh, n- not me personally, unfortunately. Although I have I have consumed a bottle of the whiskey, and I can uh, I can highly recommend it. The uh, it all works as a global consultancy, and and so the uh, our uh, the Finnish part of our business, uh, based in Finland, worked with uh, MacMyra in Sweden uh, to develop this whiskey. Yeah, this was very much a partnership um, with the experts uh, and the and the distillers, and you know th- this idea of you know innovation being a numbers game, but but also a human game uh, combined uh, was how we approached this engagement. And so uh, the the team looked at all the decisions that go into making a whiskey. So you can imagine that like the selection of grain, selection of peat, the selection of a cask, the the time and and process characteristics. You know that all, all boil down into into numbers. Uh, that could be captured in in one model, uh, which is the generative model. So here's all the different ways that we could put a whiskey together. Uh, and then there was they also looked at how consumers perceive different whiskies. So you know, tasting notes, preferences for flavors. And so from from this aspect, they could they could build what we call a discriminative model. And so this model could tell us how good a design was. And so using these two models uh, as as well as the the human expertise, we're able to explore a much wider range of potential whiskies. And under the the guidance of a master distiller, select one um, that proposed by the AI uh, that that looked like it would be a good fit for consumer tastes and and, and, and a new blend that hadn't been uh, introduced to the market as yet. So basically what artificial intelligence did for MacMyra was take all that data and help turn it into a new model, a new business model. Is that right? Yeah, precisely, yes. A, a new product in this case. So adding to their their lineup of of whiskies by exploring a space that you know hadn't hadn't occurred necessarily to the to the human distillers yet but you know was able to be discovered by uh, rendering the problem in a way that was suitable for an AI uh, to to explore the product space and and come up with new ideas. I I would imagine yes I would imagine that well you've got MacMyra but you would have all sorts of consumer products would be would actually benefit from this. Yeah absolutely yeah I mean mean, you can look at any product in, in the same way as the team did at MacMyra as a you know as a series of, of design decisions or design parameters and then you can you can try and characterize its performance in the market as a as a test or as a model that can be run uh, and then for for any product it, it, any physical product but also services as well so we can look at the the service characteristics uh, and customer experience uh, the, these are also things that can be parameterized and and that we can test uh, with with models and so any any product or service we can Start to think about it in these terms that allows allows us to identify previously un, untested opportunities or untested designs. In the- I would imagine it would be very good for retailers too, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, very much. So yeah, I mean, if, if you look at a retail, 
And uh, you could look at a retail product catalog in uh, through the same lens, and you can you can look at the you can identify areas where there are potentially gaps in the product catalog with these sorts of techniques as well. So you know we might have a, a range of uh, a range of shoes, and there might be another style that's emerging uh, in another part of the catalog, say say jackets, and it might be that the AI is able to identify some common thread between uh, two different elements of the product portfolio, and and. It's you know it's it's not about entirely turning the decision over to an AI, but it's about providing insight to the, the uh, to people who are, who are working in product design, innovation, ranging those sorts of areas. Well, not only uh, for goods and for, for items selling goods, but I would imagine for companies selling services like uh, banks and yes. insurance would, would do fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, this is often where the, 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 there's a focus on on AI supporting operational decisions, but it can also be used to inform the design of financial services products uh, and and services uh, you know I was uh, uh, looking at a banking app the other day where there's uh, you know a, a budget management feature and, and thinking about how this is a, an example of AI helping uh, people with a strategy to achieve an objective and, and we've also worked in uh, delivering customer service in, uh, in in the design of uh, call center experiences as well. So being able to simulate whether we're, we're able to meet customer expectations uh, with a with a particular uh, design for which agents handle which calls in a call center. What what could AI do for employees? I would imagine it would actually, could actually boost morale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in this in this creative space, it can it can be like working with a another creative partner, you know, who has yeah particular abilities in, 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 a, in a space of in the design space and so you know you can you can use uh, these tools in a way to help you come up with more ideas uh, that you might not have thought of yourself you can use them to help you develop those ideas faster and uh, to improve productivity and you can use them uh, to test ideas uh, to get fast feedback on ideas that you know might otherwise take some time to, to validate and it would also be great uh, for uh, uh, for keeping employees on board stop them leaving the company wouldn't it? yeah yeah it, it, yeah, it provides you know it, it, yeah it provides a number of avenues for development and growth and, and ongoing learning you know which is which is very important for people uh, as uh, in the in the current climate you know everyone's we talk about the great resignation and people are evaluating what's important important to them and you know this this sort of uh, work is a, is a multidisciplinary type of work that that brings many different roles together yeah, uh, product business technology and, and data and analytics i would imagine your final question is i would imagine um, covid and lockdowns would have actually helped precipitate this interest in ai would, it, would that be right? Uh, yeah, yes. The, the, obviously, um, yeah, COVID's impacted uh, the development of uh, AI solutions in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, the, obviously, uh, the, yeah, a lot of focus around, around video and, and video content as a, as a way to connect to people. And so, yeah, it's, I guess, ch- yeah, channels of communication and channels of distribution have become a lot more digital uh, in, in the COVID world. And, you know, these also provide more opportunities to, uh, to, yeah, to I guess, to instrument the experience and to, to augment uh, the human connection with AI as well. So what, what we've also had to adapt models very quickly. Price was a was a primary indicator prior to lockdowns. Uh, availability uh, is now sort of a primary indicator of uh, uh, product performance uh, in, in, in the current world. Right, okay. Okay, okay. Well, Dave, that's all fascinating. And, and thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Leon. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, the... Unemployment figures came in at 3.9%. Uh, it's like the labour market is 
getting very tight. Well, that's exactly right. It's the tightest labour market we've had since 1974, so almost 50 years. Employment gained only slightly. In April, it was only up about 4,000 people, but I think that's going to be increasingly the reality of what the Australian labour market looks like as uh, it continues to tighten. That is some of the, the big employment figures that we have seen over... You know, the, the past couple of years, particularly over the past uh, five months, um, probably aren't sustainable long term. And so we're going to start seeing monthly increases of employment of, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people. But in a really tight labour market, that's going to be enough to drive the unemployment rate lower, which is what we expect to see. Don't be surprised if the unemployment rate is nearer to 3.5 per cent come the end of 2022. So very tight labour market and certainly heading in the right direction. Now, those lower employment numbers would also be because the population growth has been very modest, hasn't it? Well, that's right. Um, Before the pandemic began, Australia's population was growing, you know, between 1.5 per cent and 2 per cent per year, um, depending on the state that you live in. It's been very subdued over the past couple of years. Um, Some states barely growing, other states only growing by a little bit. The working age population is currently increasing by about 0.6% over the past 12 months, so very different from that uh, 1.52% range that we were accustomed to. Now, what that basically means is that... I mean, that's basically the reason why we're unlikely to see these really strong employment figures Um, continue month on month, and we're going to see a marked slowdown in employment growth going forward. But even though that's likely to happen, it's still going to be sufficient to bring the unemployment rate down. And the other thing would be driving it would be stuff like job vacancies. I mean, they're around record levels now. Well, that's right. It's a really interesting dynamic at the moment. We have an incredible number of jobs available, record vacancies. At, At the same time, we have very slow population growth. And when you combine those two things together, what you end up with is a very, very tight labour market, which is precisely what Australia has. Um, and it's a large reason why we have seen the labour market tighten so quickly. You know, the recovery has exceeded all expectations. Policymakers have had to upgrade their economic forecasts again and again and again. And as long as population growth does remain quite low, it is likely that we are going to see further tightening in the Australian labour market. You know, some of the Some of these vacancies are going to be filled. Others probably aren't going to be filled in the current labour market. But even still, you're going to see a much tighter labour market over the next 12 months. It's going to be pretty challenging for recruiters, though, um, with with a low population growth and uh, fewer entering the workforce. They're going to be struggling to fill those positions. That's right. It's It's a really challenging environment for recruitment right now. Um, the dynamics in the labour market have shifted from being in favour of the employer to being in favour of the employee. Job seekers have more bargaining power in terms of wages, in terms of where and how they work. Um, there's a lot of opportunities out there for job seekers. But from a recruitment perspective, you're getting relatively few candidates. Jobs are harder to fill. Jobs are remaining unfilled for longer. And as the Australian labour market continues to tighten, those difficulties are only going to increase. Well, we were talking about wages, but wages only went up 2.4%, and uh, what, the inflation rate's 5.1%, so it's 2.7% gap. I mean, that's, that's quite bad. Yeah, I mean, it's far from ideal. Um, so real wages, so wages adjusted for inflation, fell by 2.6% over the past year, which is the largest decline we've seen since the introduction of the 
the GST. Wage growth has certainly not increased as fast as anticipated. I think most economists would have thought that we'd have seen a bit more of a, a wage breakout by now. Um, certainly policymakers thought that. It hasn't quite eventuated. Now, if we dig a little bit deeper into the wage figures, we, we can begin to see some wage pressures develop. So wages rose in only 15% of jobs um, during the March quarter, which is perfectly normal. But the average increase for those jobs was 3.4%. So those jobs received a 3.4% pay rise. So that's, and that was the highest since uh, June quarter 2013. So we are beginning to see some wage pressures build in recently negotiated jobs. So as that flows through, as we see, you know, more jobs uh, have wage increases in June and then you know, about half of all jobs receive a increase in the September quarter, we're going to begin to see wage growth push towards that 3% level. Nevertheless, when you've got inflation of 5%, that's still not going to be ideal from a, an employer perspective. So it's still a very difficult situation, even if it is likely to improve over the next 6 to 12 months. I mean, the other issue too is the unemployment rate for women, I mean, that, that's pretty low. That's at 3.7%. Uh, that's the lowest late since 1974, isn't it? That's right, near 50% low for women's unemployment. That's going to put a lot of pressure on industries that typically attract a lot of women. So I'm talking about industries such as healthcare, aged care services, even retail and um, hospitality, which do hire a very large share of women. It indicates that hiring and recruitment in those industries will become very difficult. Skill and talent shortages will emerge or become exacerbated. And it'll be interesting to see whether that translates into to higher wages in those industries. Well, it's interesting because uh, these industries are struggling to support, to, to source sufficient staff. That's right. I mean, conversations I've had with businesses in those industries indicate that it's an incredibly difficult recruitment environment right now. I mean, we just spoke about how the women's unemployment rate is incredibly low. Um, we also need to bear in mind that for some industries such as uh, retail and hospitality, the population of young people in Australia has actually declined throughout the, the pandemic, which means they've not only had this incredible increase in demand for workers, but the actual supply of potential employees is, has declined significantly. And you combine those two factors together and you end up with an incredibly uh, difficult time trying to, to find suitable candidates to, to fill a lot of these roles. There's a lot of restaurants, there's a lot of retailers who are understaffed right now and they're not entirely sure when that's going to change. Well, what, under, underemployment among women also was declining. Yeah, so this is another good story. So underemployment among women is down to 7.4%, which is actually around the lowest level in three decades. And what that means is that a larger share of women are getting the hours that they, they want. So we don't have the, the same number of, of women working part-time, only getting, say, 15 to 20 hours, and they prefer to be working 25 to 30. So a consequence of this very tight labour market is that businesses are often turning to existing staff, offering more hours to those existing staff, or they're trying to attract staff from elsewhere by offering more hours. And those dynamics are basically driving the underemployment rate down. When we assess tightness in the labour market, it's always good to look at the unemployment rate and the underemployment rate, and, and those two are moving in lockstep at the moment. So this very strong demand for workers that we have is driving both of those down. Um, that, that's a great outcome. That's precisely what you want to see. Right, OK, but it also means uh, a lot of these industries will be offering 
women second jobs, won't they? Well, second jobs is part of that, yeah. Obviously, you can increase your hours by taking up, you know, performing more hours at the job you work at, or you can take on an additional job. We have seen that secondary jobs have increased recently. They're at 6.6% of, of all jobs in, in Australia. And and likely reason for that is because there are those opportunities out there. Now, there is a possibility going forward that there might be a lot of people taking up second jobs because of rising inflation, rising cost of living pressures. Um, so that'll be an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on over the next uh, you know, three, six months. Now, the issue too is that COVID is still affecting Australia. And is that impacting the hours worked? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it it certainly is. So... 5.1% 5.1% of workers in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland worked fewer hours than normal due to, to illness and sick leave in the month of April. And the impact was actually even greater in the other states. It was about 6.9% of, of workers. And this is highly unusual. This is well above what would normally be the case. And it seems as though this sort of COVID impact on hours worked is something that's going to persist with us until case numbers get down. Um, the simple fact is, if you have a lot of cases, a lot of people isolating at home for, for a week or two, it's just going to have a big impact on on hours worked across the, the economy, which could potentially weigh on economic growth. Um, I guess we'll see once the, the March quarter GDP figures come out, what sort of impact um, this heightened sick leave is having on overall economic activity. But it certainly seems likely that it will have at least some impact. Now, uh, in view of the uh, lower wage wage growth figures, but in view of the tighter labour market, where do you see the RBA going? Do you see them still raising interest rates? Absolutely. I mean, they anticipate that inflation will get to 6% by the end of the year. They're also anticipating that wage growth is going to pick up. So they... In order to address that, they are going to have to hike rates pretty aggressively over the remainder of the year. I would expect rate hikes in in most of those meetings through to December. So rates will be much higher come the end of the year than they currently are. So where do you see rates finishing this year? Uh, Great question. Obviously, there's a a fair bit of uncertainty around that. I would expect somewhere between 1.5 and 2%. Right, Okay. And of course, it's going to continue into next year. And uh, I mean... People like Shane Oliver and the RBA are talking about uh, it peaking at about 2.6%. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a possibility. Now, obviously, there's a huge amount of uncertainty around this. Inflationary pressures could begin to diminish, um, depending on what happens with the, the war in Ukraine. Maybe supply chain disruptions begin to diminish as well, and suddenly inflation is no longer as big a problem. Um, but based on everything we know at the moment, 
we're expecting an elevated inflationary environment, some of the, the largest inflation figures we've ever seen, and that's going to require a pretty aggressive response from the Reserve Bank to contain that. Okay. Well, uh, Callum, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the financial leaders of the world's most powerful countries warned this week of the potential for a global economic slowdown as the threats caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine continued to multiply. Globally, the war is sending energy and food prices soaring. In the United States, Britain and Europe, central banks determined to curb inflation are moving to hike interest rates, which risks pushing nations into recession. The developing world faces an emerging debt crisis on top of a growing hunger problems sparked by the war. After approving trillions of dollars in fiscal stimulus to avert the downturn caused by the coronavirus pandemic, world economic leaders are now grappling with the threat of stagflation, slow or negative economic growth, coupled with rising inflation. The World Bank has also warned of a huge built-up of debt, particularly in the poorest countries, with debt payments at their highest level in 20 years. Half of low-income countries are now categorised as being at high risk of debt distress, according to the Centre for Global Economic Development. And Russia's war in Ukraine will unleash the worst food crisis in recent memory across vast swathes of the developing world, with the potential to create hell on earth for some countries, the World Economic Forum in Davos heard on Monday. As Ukrainian officials, including President Vladimir Zelensky, battled to find ways of breaking down a Russian blockade with their exports, a WEF survey of chief economists says the crisis is triggering export restrictions worldwide that will make things even worse. The survey also revealed that most chief economists reckon Europe is staring down the barrel of stagflation this year, while in the US and Asia-Pacific there is more prospect of economic growth even as prices surge. According to the survey commissioned by the Switzerland-based WEF for its annual summit in Davos, about 80% of chief economists predict the Middle East and Africa are facing insecurity or high insecurity in their food supplies over the next three years. The UN Food Agency's executive director, David Beasley, warned in Davos that some countries could face hell on earth this year if Ukrainian exports did not resume. Both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters not only of wheat and vegetable oils, but also of fertiliser, which could create spillovers into other crops. And the risk of widespread wage rises of more than 5% is the number one threat to the economy, employers say, as they urge the Albanese government to use its upcoming job summit to restore the Hawke-Keating enterprise bargaining system to boost productivity. Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Willocks on Monday said businesses were under pressure from unions pushing across the board wage rises at an unsustainable level for many businesses, citing the ACTU's call for a 5.5% increase in this year's minimum wage. Willicks cautioned that the latest data showing sluggish wage growth of 2.4% does not really reflect what is really going on with workplaces. It's very common to hear employers talk about giving workers 10, 20, 30% pay increases to retain staff because of the job shortages, he said. However, he welcomed Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's commitment to reforms that increase productivity. And big business will put changes to the better off overall test squarely on the negotiating table when it meets with unions and the new Labor government during Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's employment summit. The government faces one of its first ideological and economic tests in submitting its case for an increase in the minimum wage of the Fair Work Commission by June 7. But it will confront another when employers revive the debate over enterprise bargaining after Labor forced a coalition back down during the election. Albanese named the promised employment summit as being high on his reform agenda during his first parliamentary press conference as Prime Minister on Monday. The Better Off Overall Test, or BOOT, a key workplace system safeguard that ensures workers don't go backwards during pay negotiations, requires each individual worker to be better off under the terms of any new enterprise agreement than under the industry awarded for it to be passed. 
During the election campaign, Albanese accused Scott Morrison of putting workplace conditions up for grabs when the then Prime Minister revived his commitment to the coalition's shelved industrial relations package, which included changes to workplace bargaining that Labor and unions argued would lead to some paid staff being paid less. And Australia's new Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, said almost out of control inflation was a major challenge for the economy and record budget deficits would constrain the Albanese Labor government's spending capacity. Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy on Sunday afternoon met with Dr Chalmers at his house in Logan in Brisbane's outer suburbs to provide the incoming government briefing known as the Red Book. He also met with the regulators and other key stakeholders after being sworn in as Treasurer on Monday, which included leaders of the Corporate and Competition Watchdog as well as the Reserve Bank of Australia. The incoming government will inherit a strong economy being buffeted by global forces beyond its control, annual inflation set to hit almost 6%, more than a decade of deficits, and gross debt set to exceed $1 trillion. Dr Chalmers said when it came to managing economic challenges, it wasn't a case of flicking a switch and everything being better overnight. Labor committed to an additional $18.9 billion in spending promises ahead of polling day, as well as $11.5 billion in savings and revenue measures, leaving the budget about $7.5 billion worse off over the forward estimates. That will add $224 billion in forecast cumulative deficits over the next four financial years, which will take gross debt north of $1 trillion. And Anthony Albanese's history as a consensus builder has given business some confidence that Australia can move forward, just like when everyone, including Canberra unions and government agencies, was pulling in the same directions at the start of the COVID crisis. Most of all, chief executives are relieved that Australia looks to be on track for a stable majority government, while also encouraged by the rise of the teal independence movement in Australian politics as a potential counter to Labor's union-backed instincts. Labor has a longer-term ambition to convert these teal voters to their side. Outside of the climate demands, many of the teal candidates based in former Liberal strongholds in the cities are aligned with the aspirational values of the Business Council of Australia, ranging from tax cuts for individuals and business to lighter regulation. While the business links of Albanese and his incoming treasurer Jim Chalmers don't run as deep as the outgoing Morrison government, the new Prime Minister forged strong contacts through his former ministerial post in transport infrastructure during the Rudd-Gillard governments. This includes names such as Qantas boss Alan Joyce and Sir Rod Eddington, who at the time was the inaugural chair of the Canberra-backed Infrastructure Australia under Albanese. Meanwhile, Sam Moston, the chair of Citigroup and a Mervac director, remains a public supporter of Albanese and attended his victory celebration in Sydney's Inner West on Saturday. This is critically important, as Moston is also the chair of the Hyper-Connected Chief Executive Women organisation, which counts hundreds of the nation's top female executives and directors as members, as well as having significant links with corporate Australia. Corporate Australia is under no illusions that the Albanese Chalmers partnership is promising to be a pro-business government, but given lessons of the COVID years and new challenges ranging from hyperinflation to slowing global growth, a cooperative approach would be welcome. And China must remove its sanctions on Australian products to have any chance of improving relations between the two countries, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has declared after joining the Quad Summit in Tokyo with regional leaders to endorse a firm line against Chinese coercion. While Chinese Premier Li Keqing sent a letter to Albanese on Monday to congratulate him on his election victory and seek sound and stable relations, Albanese responded with a pointed remark about Chinese restrictions on imports of Australian coal, barley, wine and other products in recent years. With regard to our relations, Australia seeks good relations with all countries, but it's not Australia that's changed. China has. It is China that has placed sanctions on Australia. There is no justification for doing that, and that's why they should be removed, he said. Treasurer Jim Chalmers hosed down suggestions that the relationship with China would take a turn for the better under the Albanese government. Chalmers has told the Seven Network Sunrise program the relationship was complex to manage before Saturday and would remain so. 
and Australian carbon credit prices have staged a major recovery after Labor's electoral win, but uncertainty still lingers over the medium-term outlook as investors in Australia's biggest companies wait for details on more aggressive emissions reduction goals, including a tougher safeguard. The spot price for Australian carbon credit units has soared 20% in the last days to $36 a tonne. Investors are betting on rising demand with a greater number of Australian polluters expected to tap credits as Labor tightens the baseline for the safeguard mechanism, its signature climate change policy. Like energy contracts, carbon credits can be bought and sold among big emitters to help companies lower risk and keep on path to net zero emissions. Westpac is buying carbon credits to hold on its own balance sheet, which are used by big customers looking to offset their carbon footprint. The desk is also involved in sustainability financing, including arranging green bonds on behalf of customers. Despite this week's bounce, prices remain nearly 40% lower than February levels when the market crashed after former Energy Minister Angus Taylor allowed fixed carbon contract holders to exit their deals with the Commonwealth to access higher prices in the secondary market. And employers may be required to train staff to speak up about workplace sexual harassment with a view to preventing it or at least intervene earlier and deal with power imbalances without excluding women under a legislation committed to by the new Labor government. The amendment, known as a positive duty to the Sex Discrimination Act, stems from Labor's pre-election commitment to fully implement all 55 recommendations from the Human Rights Commission's landmark respective work report by Sex Discrimination Commission Kate Jenkins, released in March 2020. Workplace, business, legal and gender equality experts welcome the commitment, but warn there needs to be proper funding and measurement tools to ensure they are successful. A positive duty will require employers to take active steps to try to eliminate sex discrimination, sexual harassment and victimisation. Morris Blackburn National Head of Injuries, Liberty Sanger, said a positive duty would make it crystal clear that when it came to workplace sexual harassment, it was the employer's responsibility to make sure the workplace was safe. And VanEck Australia will list a fund tracking the price of carbon across four global emission trading schemes on the local share market. As the investment manager moves to meet surging demand for green portfolio exposures, it said, was reinforced by green and teal election victories. The local arm of the US $85.5 billion, that's Aussie $120.1 billion, Wall Street investment firm on Monday lodged an application with the Australian Securities Investments Commission to launch the VanEck Global Carbon Credits, or ETF, synthetic, on the Australian Securities Exchange. Claiming to be Australia's first listed retail fund of its kind, and the first globally for VanEck, the ETF will invest in futures linked to the price of carbon credits, which are permits issued by governments allowing companies to offset their carbon or greenhouse gas emissions. The pending fund will track a new Aussie dollar version of the ICE Global Carbon Future Index, which is made up of carbon prices from four of the world's most established markets, the EU Emissions Trading Scheme, the UK Emissions Trading Scheme, California's Western Climate Initiative, and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative of the Northeastern US states such as Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maine and Massachusetts. And funds under management in the industry super sector have surpassed $1 trillion for the first time on record, despite a rout in global equity market causing the super system to contract in March for the first time in two years. Funds under management in the super systems fell to $3.44 trillion from $3.47 trillion in March on the back of the depressed equity market. But the industry super sector defied the crunch, with assets under management increasing 13.4% to $1.1 trillion, according to data released by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. It means that industry super funds manage almost one in every three dollars in the super system. And AGL Energy has been hit with a fresh attack following Labor's election victory, with billionaire Mike Cannonbrook saying the company's demerger plan was not aligned with Paris Green goals and at odds with the nation wanting stronger climate action. 
Over 55% of investors last year voted in favour for AGL, Australia's biggest polluter, to set short, medium and long-term decarbonisation goals, despite it telling shareholders to vote against the resolution. Mr Cannon Brooks, AGL's largest shareholder, is fighting a planned separation of the company into separate retail and generation businesses and wants to quit coal by 2035 to meet Paris Climate Accords, a pact to keep temperatures growing less than 2%, growing less than 2 degrees from pre-industrial levels with an aim of limiting rises to 1.5 degrees. And Qantas has bought a majority shareholding in Byron Bay-based online travel booking website TripAdeal for an undisclosed sum as it targets double-digit earnings growth in its frequent flyer segment this financial year. The deal also includes options for the airline to buy the rest of the business in four years' time from other shareholders in the business. Qantas said the deal would be accretive to earnings targets for the frequent flyer business, which in addition to growth targets for the year ending June 30, is aiming to earn from $500 million to $600 million by the 2024 period. And a major cost-cutting program weakens Star's risk and compliance function, outgoing Chairman John O'Neill said during his second day before a Royal Commission-style inquiry. Mr O'Neill drew parallels between Star Entertainment and the Banking Royal Commission, telling the inquiry looked like the banks were underdone on risk and compliance, and he said a pre-pandemic cost-cutting program hindered that progress. Mr O'Neill also said Star was not alone, with rival Crown Resorts increasing its risk and compliance team from 30 to 130 people. And a local arm of US tech giant Facebook paid just $24 million in tax last year, despite raking in advertising revenue of $1.1 billion, most of which was sent offshore, according to financial results filed with Australia's corporate regulator. Facebook's advertising revenue surged to $1.12 billion for the year ending December 31, according to the company's latest financial filings, up from $746.6 million in 2020. The company also posted a pre-tax profit of $61.1 million, nearly doubling from $37.9 million a year earlier. It booked just $24.2 million on tax in 2021, up slightly from $20.2 million a year earlier, with the majority of the company's revenue, $949.3 million, sent to an offshore subsidiary for purchasing advertising inventory. That was nearly double the $559 million in revenue sent to its offshore subsidiary a year earlier. The company pays for advertising inventory to other related parties in accordance with an advertising reseller agreement, Facebook said in its financial disclosures. Facebook and Apple have come under increased scrutiny for diverting hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue away from Australia to other jurisdictions. Last year in July, Australia and New Zealand agreed in principle to a new tax scheme negotiated by the OECD, which would come into effect in 2023 and would target 20 to 30% of the net profits of larger multinationals engaged in automated digital services like Facebook. Some countries currently impose a direct digital services tax, but Australia does not. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Brisbane-based entrepreneur Tim West, who is behind Aussie boxing gym startup Ubox, which has sealed an $88 million UK expansion deal. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslake about the economic challenges for the Albanese government. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.